Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Jesse Single. Jesse Single is a journalist and author. He was a contributing writer for New York Magazine for years and has written for The Atlantic and many other outlets. And he's now on Substack. Jesse and I discuss his new book, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills. We discuss the replication crisis in psychology, why so much psych research gets debunked in the long run. We talk about the problem with notions like self-esteem, power posing, grit, and other fads in psychology. We spend a good deal of time talking about the implicit bias test and its flaws. So without further ado, Jesse Single. Okay, Jesse Single, thanks so much for coming on my show. Hey, thanks for having me, Coleman. Been wanting to get you on for a long time, and your book, which I have right here, The Quick Fix, Why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills, is the perfect occasion. So before we get into the book, can you give my audience a sense of your background as a writer, uh, the kind of topics you become interested in, and where you've written and what you've written about? Yeah. So in my 20s, I was sort of a pretty predictable liberal opinion writer. And something happened like as I got a little bit older where I got more interested in why people disagree and why they're wrong about certain things than in just sort of being a culture warrior. That led me to folks like John Haidt, to a lot of social psychology, ended up going to a, a public policy master's program with a heavy psychology component. And then like through sheer good luck, I, I got to edit this then new social science vertical at New York Magazine called The Science of Us uh, back in 2014. That led to like a, a much greater realization of how much of the science we're told is solid, isn't solid at all, and has like very little underneath it, which led to the book basically. So that was a very short version, but it's the basic recent history. So the big picture topic of your book is the problem of fad psychology. It's these you know, proverbial BuzzFeed or HuffPo articles, but they can really be New York Times articles. They can be Wall Street Journal articles as well. TED Talks, yeah. TED Talks especially that just have some very oversimplified version of human psychology or the X effect we've discovered. And they get shared by the millions because they're they're like crack for people, but <laughs> they almost invariably end up getting partially or fully debunked. And it's, it's become a phenomenon, especially in the past 15 years or so. You start out with this concept of prime world in your book. Can you describe what you mean by that? Yeah. Uh, prime world is basically the idea that you can make a lot of progress solving human problems by sort of tweaking individuals. So you can look at their biases, I think we all know what a bias is. You can look at their primes. Primes are sort of these subtle environmental inputs that, according to the theory of social priming, have a pretty big effect on how we behave. So the theory is that you can slice off this like little slice of human life, primes and biases and other sort of 
individually tweakable things and you can make progress toward gender equality or ending racism or fixing the education gap. And I think it's a pretty seductive worldview because it suggests we don't really have to do that much, like that these cute little tweaks that psychologists come up with can really get us a lot of the way there. But I think this is like a pretty unsophisticated understanding of human nature and of human social structures. So it tends to fail. Mm. Yeah, I remember reading in Robert Sapolsky's book, Behave, a bunch of examples of priming. And one, for whatever reason, stuck with me, which is that if the room smells like garbage, <laughs> you become more homophobic. Yeah, there's a, um, there's a lot of those. And these, you can understand why a study like that will get a lot of mainstream attention and get written up in a book. It's very provocative, this idea that like smelling garbage can make you... I'm laughing because that's almost like if I were going to make up like a fake social priming experiment <laughs> as like this sort of thing. But there were so many of these studies. And when you try to replicate them, when you try to run the experiment back and generate the same effect again... Usually it doesn't work. Experimental psychology on the whole has a rate of successful replication of about 50%. Social psychology tends to be much lower. And, and Brian Nozick, who's sort of one of the most well-regarded social psychologists around, told a journalist writing about this issue, he's not aware of any social priming phenomena that has successfully replicated. And he's a guy who hmm. speaks very carefully. So this area of science has just been a disaster. So the thing about these results is that they're simultaneously surprising, but also plausible. So for instance, the other two I remember off the top of my head that I've heard many people talk about are that if you're, there's some experiment where you're asked to rate the attractiveness of a man or woman on a, a shaky bridge or in a situation that that uh, seems dangerous, you know, a roller coaster type situation, and you mistake your elevated heart rate and arousal for a sexual arousal. You, you, you mistake your physiological arousal for a sexual arousal, and you end up rating that person as more attractive than you would have if you had met them in, in another context or in a, in a normal context. And that's the kind of thing that doesn't sound crazy. It doesn't sound, it sounds surprising enough that I would be interested in, in it, it yeah. interested in it, but there's something superficially, at least plausible about, it. does that count as a priming effect too? Or, you know, the notion that if you wear red, that people will think you're more attractive. Are those right. all in prime world as well? I, I would say that there's like a spectrum here. So that, that bridge study is really famous. I actually don't remember off the top of my head if it replicated successfully. There's actually a theory underlying that, though. That is that, like, your body is giving you the signal that you're just sort of misinterpreting. Mm -hmm. That, to me, doesn't sound like a crazier out-of-the-blue theory. Mm -hmm. Let me give you an example of the kind that, to me, is, like, really classic priming. There was a study where they showed uh, the participants a photo of the thinker, you know, the statue where the dude's going like this. Yeah. Or they showed them a photo of a statue of a guy hurling a discus. And they claimed that just looking at a statue of a guy thinking reduce people's level of re religiosity by 20 points <laughs> on a hundred point scale. Right. You're laughing because it makes no freaking sense. Um, that, the that study, there's, there's <laughs> no there, there theoretically, how could that effect possibly be true? And sure enough, it didn't replicate the bridge study. I'd say is like a hybrid because you could come up with some sort of, um, evolutionary psychology theory of like, you know, your, your body reacting away. You see someone you're, I, I, that doesn't strike me as crazy. 
the idea that looking at a statue may, immediately makes you less religious, I think mm. is crazy in a different way. Yeah, I, I think one of the lessons of this is wherever the initial statement falls on the common sense spectrum, that's usually very close to where it lands in the final analysis, right? Like I, I can imagine how, say you meet someone in the context of a war zone, yeah. right? With, with all that drama, I, I can imagine how you might fall in love with them. And then when transported to back to reality, you realize actually it was partly a result of the environment we, we were yeah. in. Without the shells whizzing overhead, yeah. she didn't right. look so hot, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> There's something plausible about that. Yeah, but you know the notion that you could be that affected by the particular kind of statue you're seeing. Yeah, if that is true, it would imply that our minds are all the time being buffeted in fundamental ways by totally arbitrary aspects of our environment. Like yeah. the fact that I'm surrounded by taller buildings right now rather than shorter ones is changing my attitude probably changing my, my politics in like fundamental ways. And it doesn't, it paints a picture of how mercurial human beliefs are that doesn't align with what I know to be true from having been a human in society for a quarter century. Yeah. And, and in my chapter on this stuff, I, I hit a book called Before You Know It by a guy named John Barge pretty hard. He's sort of one of the leaders of social priming. He makes claims like, you know, when the weather's warm, people believe in global warming. When it's cold, they don't. And at the margin, there's some like narrow sense in which that shifts people's beliefs a little. But again, common sense and, and everyday experience tells us that our beliefs on global warming are connected to our politics and they're very hard to nudge. It's obviously not the case that every snowstorm I go back to not believing in global warming, then summer, co- it's just what you said about common sense is true. And it actually stole an idea for a column I had mm. that. The, psycholo- the process of psychological experimentation needs more common sense. And they've done these interesting studies where you take the results and you run them by a panel of just lay people and you describe mm-hmm. the finding and say, how likely do you think it is that that's true? And even just average people do better than a coin flip telling which studies are likely to replicate. And, and that percentage gets higher when you run it by a panel of, of psychologists. So common sense is definitely lacking from a lot of these studies. Yeah, but there's also something about that that's interesting to me because isn't the whole point of academia to teach us things that are true, but that are not, that we don't already know as a result of common sense. So I I can sort of see how isn't the incentive always to find something that goes against common sense because, or else why are we, why are we doing this whole academia thing, right? Why why not just rely on our guts? So is there a conflict there between asking psychologists to accord more with common sense and asking them to do the job an academic is supposed to do? Well, I think what's interesting about this is like common sense has historically been an enemy of science. I mean, how could light be a particle and a wave at the same time? That makes no sense. Quantum mechanics like destroys our our notion of common sense. Maybe it's a matter of like how much theory is underlying a given idea. If there's no real existing theory in which looking at a statue would make you less religious or hearing the word wrinkled would then make you walk slower. It just, it doesn't fit into our understanding of what minds, that's a, that's a famous social priming study that they touted as true and then it didn't replicate. So common sense is part of it, but also like, does this fit into an underlying theory of what human minds are and what they're for and what sorts of influences we would expect to matter? But, but you're right. You can't just say common sense because like the whole history of science is 
is toppling the common sense of the era. So let's get into why it is that this problem exists. So the, the first theory I'm going to put forward, which I, I don't believe, but I think is important to just put forward is maybe psychologists are just not intelligent. <laughs> maybe a lack of intelligence among the people doing this research is the problem. They should be more like podcasters who saying like smart yeah, intellectual people. Yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think that sort of lets the, like the, they should be more like philosophy majors and podcasters. <laughs> um, that's true. Sometimes I think it's much more complicated than that because it's really much more about incentives and like what your university press office wants you to do with your new experiment, the mm-hmm. seductions of a Ted talk, you know, I, I don't think the academic system is a pure meritocracy, but my book is littered with people with like sterling credentials who clearly were able to achieve at high levels. Um, I think it's much more just like this, this unholy alliance of sort of research institutions and pop science outlets and the TED Talk stage, because we have a lot of reasons to think that like otherwise smart people can act stupid under the right circumstances or the wrong circumstances, perhaps. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I think that point is really worth dwelling on because you might want to believe, and, and it's probably to some extent true, that becoming more intelligent will reliably lead you toward knowing more true things about the world, towards truth and away from illusion. Yeah. Right? Like if intelligence is not for that, then what the hell is it for? Right. But at the same time, there's just a very recent history of very intelligent people, people who have very much above average SAT scores and so forth, coming to conclusions that a person of totally average intelligence off the street could, from their gut, call as wrong pretty reliably. And that's, that's important to dwell upon because it makes you understandably and rightly question the the link between intelligence and discovering more true things about the world. And I think the the missing piece there is, well, a few things. One is the ubiquity of bias. The fact that becoming more intelligent doesn't at all make you less biased. It might do the, I think it, in many cases, it gives you more tools to sort of tickle your bias and, and provide justifications for what you wanted to believe anyway. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's, you just have more arguments at your disposal that can make sense of why you got X, Y, or Z wrong. Yeah. And so there's, there's that. And then there's also the problem of the perennial problem of human beings being self-interested actors responding to incentives in a given system. Right? Yeah. This is why a lot of government dysfunction exists. Um, why no matter how hard we try, we can't, seem to get rid of politicians doing very bad things that we later discover in their own, that they did in their own self-interest, right? The same exact problem exists in academia. You know, this baseline interest in status and recognition incentivizes people, you know, every PhD to come up with that sexy new finding and cut corners as a result. And your uh, your book is is littered with examples of this. I think a lot of people will probably remember is power posing. Yeah. Can you talk about the origin of power posing? 
Yeah, this this was actually the example I was going to raise. Uh, power posing is the idea that if you stand in an assertive pose, like hands on your hips, like Superwoman, or or just just arms uh, limbs out in general, in in sort of a position that embodies power, you will feel more powerful, and this will have an effect on your performance in situations like negotiation. And Amy Cuddy, who is then a young professor at the Harvard Business School was sort of the main evangelist of this. She was one of three co-authors on a study where they basically had kids, Columbia, I think, either power pose or do a contractive pose, like sort of a mummy pose, and then test their uh, salivary testosterone levels and see whether they'd participate in this little double or nothing dice bet game for like $2 or something. And from this very thin finding that one of her co-authors later sort of renounced and said was, we just accidentally made statistical errors, Cuddy, you know, got up on the TED Talk stage and said that power posing can rewire your brain to make you more assertive. And those are the moments that really interested me writing this book because it strikes me as unlikely that if you sort of pulled Amy Cuddy aside and like over a beer at a bar with no one watching said, do you really think it's like accurate to say power posing can rewire your brain? Like in anything other than the most trivial sense in which everything rewires your brain. It seems unlikely to me that she would like say, yep, it rewires your brain. It's just like you, you, it's sort of a code switching thing where you're, when you're on the TED talk stage mm-hmm. or when you're giving the quote to the New York Times, like Angela Duckworth, the creator of Grit, said that uh, grit beats the pants off of traditional measures in determining outcomes. I mean, that's a whole other subject, but there is such temptation to overclaim when you have the spotlight on you in that way. And I think that gets to what you're saying, that like intelligence does not shield you against self-interest or self-preservation or the Mm. tendency toward self-aggrandizement. Yeah. And I I think another key thing to, to note here is that none of the characters in your book who made claims that that they later basically had to walk back because of pressure from the rest of the scientific community, none of these people are evil. No. None of them even seem abnormal to me. They seem like very normal, pretty well-adjusted people. Yeah. Right? And I think that's a key point because it's very easy to demonize someone who comes up with an effect that's later totally debunked in, in certain of these cases. But I think the more important insight is that this is how normal people behave in an incentive system that rewards simple monocausal sexy accounts. Yeah. I think that's um, exactly right. Yeah. And, and well, and also, I mean, I think the important point here is to realize that I think the amount of pseudoscience disseminated as a result of this probably dwarfs the amount of pseudoscience uh, disseminated as a result of outright fraud or malice. Like there's actually not, I don't think there's that much fraud or malice in science. Where I do think we can and should render some judgment is like, what do you do when you reach that moment where you realize that this thing you put five or 10 or 15 years into is under credible threat? Do you walk it back somewhat or do you continue to double down? And, Mm. And there's a wide range there in my book. I mean, like Angela Duckworth, who created Grit, was pretty honest and forthcoming about its limitations, at least in some ways. In my view, Amy Cuddy continued to sort of double down long after she should have. So yeah, it's like sort of an interesting character study. Like what do you do when you have so much invested in this idea and the idea is sort of falling apart? Yeah. Can you talk about grit? What is grit? Yes. Grit was a, uh, Angela Duckworth came up with it 
think around 2004 it hit the scene, this supposedly new way of measuring people's level of sort of stick-to-itiveness and passion. Uh, this can determine who will try hardest, who will stick with their long-term goals hardest. I took an online grit te- test. I'm in the 10th percentile, so I am almost completely devoid of grit, which <laughs> actually matches my intuitions on that. <laughs> she presented it as, as this new insight into human performance, where, where we're obsessed with IQ and SAT scores and natural athletic ability. But really, there's this other side. There's how hard you try. You can improve this. And this is another one of those examples that's both counterintuitive and intuitive, because like mm-hmm. I think she was trying to make it out to be counterintuitive. I don't really think like American culture has a deficit of this sentiment that if you just try harder, you'll succeed. I think that's like actually woven into our culture. That's one of the things that struck me about grit is, is it a circular concept or, right? So it's like, you're telling me you can measure basically how, how hardworking I am. You can measure that character trait and the character trait is also totally malleable. So what does this add to the pre 2004 common sense intuition about, Oh, Joe is kind of a lazy guy, but he's become more hardworking in the past year. Right? Well, what is, what is the notion of grit add to simple common sense? Well, so Duckworth never claimed she was hoping we could find ways to improve grit. The main problem here is grit is effectively identical to conscientiousness, which is a well-studied personality trait we've known about for decades that offers some predictive utility. Like if if you were going to hire people for uh, Coleman Hughes Enterprises and you wanted to know what one thing to pick to see who would do the best in the job, intelligence just dwarfs conscientiousness by most measures. It's just much, much more important based on what we know. There's, these are obviously correlations, so you can't overgeneralize. So grit is basically just a repackaging of conscientiousness, uh, except in these very narrow technical senses that I explained in the book. But we don't really know how to scientifically improve someone's conscientiousness or grit. There's a couple promising interventions that seem to take a lot of time and effort through like personalized coaching, I think, with a professional psychologist. But there's Personality traits tend to be pretty stable, like our conscientiousness goes up slightly over the lifespan. But um, among the other reasons to wonder why we should pay this much attention to grit, especially with like low income school kids, there's just not much evidence we can boost it that much anyway. And that, that's another area where I think common sense guy off the street would say, well, haven't people been trying to get others to be less lazy for literally yeah. thousands of years? Yeah. Right. Isn't that almost every parent struggle with at least one of their kids? So that is, that's not to say you can't have any new insights about perennial problems. You can, but usually they're rare. They're few and far between, and they usually have to rely on some powerful theory that we've recently discovered. Because yeah. if there were an easy way to do it, something analogous to coaching, I'm pretty sure we would have figured that out by now. Yes. And that's true of a lot of, of my book's content is like, it is that same thing of like, oh, really? This is the thing that's going to end racially discriminatory outcomes in America is this test you came up with? Does that, does that really make sense? Right. The other thing is there is this like important opportunity cost component because some of the leading critics of grit have pointed out that you take whatever time you spend on grit and you literally just redirect that money to things like extra help with homework or uh, truancy officers have like a noticeable effect on kids' grades. I don't know if it's truancy officers or just some intervention to like check to make sure kids aren't true. It that stuff is way more boring. No one's going to get a TED talk being like, "We should give kids extra help with homework" because it's so obvious. But a lot of those mm-hmm. obvious interventions 
bear more fruit than anything grit related appears to. Mm. Okay. So another question I have for you is about some of the popular personality tests that people take. The Myers-Briggs test comes to mind. I've taken that a few times. And the Enneagram test, I don't know if you know about that one. I've heard of it, yeah. So do you do you know much about how these tests, whether these tests mean anything or are actually useful or scientifically valid and how they compare to the big five personality test? My sense is Myers-Briggs. I have not looked deeply into this. I don't think it has much evidence behind it. I think the big five is pretty well established. There's always debate over various facets of it because you're taking like most of human life and trying to put it into five buckets in the yeah. ocean model. One interesting thing that I don't think made the book that I that I stumbled upon is there's some evidence that for all these personality characteristics, uh, you know, openness, neuroticism, extroversion, other reports are much more accurate than self-reports. So if I ask other people how extroverted is Coleman, there's a chance they would be much more accurate than you would be at measuring your own extroversion, which that, that struck me as really interesting and an example of the obstacles to sort of good psychological science, because it is much more time consuming to do a study where you find people's friends and have them rate them than if I just get you in a room and have you fill out sort of a big five instrument. So I think there's like still a lot we don't know about personality, but my sense is the ocean model is the best game in town. Mm. Yeah, that it seems like self-reporting is, and the problems with self-reporting was a kind of a theme throughout your book as well. So, you know, I've always had this question with people who study happiness. It's like you can only really rely, I guess you could rely on a report of someone's friends of how happy they are in theory. Um, I wonder if people do that, but most of it is self-reported happiness. And it seems like that could just be contaminated by self-delusion or by it could be a proxy for personality traits, right? Like certain kinds of people will report themselves to be happier. It can be a proxy for the culture you come from. How acceptable it is, is it to say that you're a happy person or an unhappy person in a particular culture or subculture within a culture? Yeah. And this, this also, this was brought to mind by your discussion of self-esteem in your book, which you spend, uh, I think a whole chapter on, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about the the self-esteem movement, the the origins of the self-esteem craze in America? Yeah. This one's colorful because it was it was mostly the work of a guy named John Vasconcelos, who was a California state assemblyman. In the 80s, he stumbled into the work of Nathaniel Brandon, who was a disciple of Ayn Rand, who mm-hmm. also slept with her. Uh, mm-hmm. just I'm wonderful. actually, I'm just quick. I'm very familiar with Nathaniel Brandon because my grandfather has forced me to listen to several hours of Nathaniel Brandon tapes. That seems like something that a grandfather might might yeah. ask you to do. Yeah, Nathaniel Brandon was a big, uh, big fan of self-esteem. And Vasconcello sort of adapted his enthusiasm for self-esteem. I, I think he misunderstood it because my understanding is Brandon did not think this was like, look in the mirror, be like, I'm great, I'm great, I'm great. But it was this very objectivist self-esteem, which stems from actual achievement. Uh, Vasconcelos put sort of a new age spin on that. And he became convinced in part on the basis of some psych research that self-esteem was like, or a lack of self-esteem was the root of all of society's ills, like poor schoolwork, even criminal behavior. He convinced the state of California to start this self-esteem commission that he led where they had, I think a few thousand, few hundred thousand dollars a year to study self-esteem. And 
through a very shoddy process where they sort of distorted the evidence, they came out and told everyone, yep, we were right. Self-esteem is really important. And this idea spread from Sacramento all over the country and to a certain extent all over the world. So you might have been too young. You might have missed this by dint of being too young. But for me, like we had a lot of talk of self-esteem from the time I was in like kindergarten or first grade about how important it is, about how you need self-esteem to do well. And in terms of self-esteem's causal role in generating outcomes, there, there doesn't appear to be much of one. Obviously, if someone thinks they're completely worthless and will fail at anything they attempt and that prevents them from attempting anything, that's bad. And they should get some cognitive behavioral therapy or meds or whatever. But beyond that, A, there isn't really a problem with self-esteem in America. If anything, the problem's in the other direction, that we have too much of it. Mm-hmm. And B, when you try to do these studies rigorously and you remove, for example, self-report problems because people with high self-esteem rate themselves highly, which gives the illusion of a link between achievement and self-esteem. Mm. When you run the studies more carefully, there's, there's almost nothing there. There's no like really meaningful link between self-esteem and good outcomes. It's amazing that that problem wasn't foreseen by people, right? Like someone who says they're a great <laughs> yeah. driver and a great friend also says that they like themselves. <laughs> right. How do you get from that to, well, self-esteem must make you a great driver. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's one of my favorite factoids is, is something, what is it like 70 or 80% of people say they're an above average driver. <laughs> I think right. almost any domain you get yeah. numbers like that. Yeah. The Lake Wobegon effect. Yeah. That's just human self-delusion in a nutshell. I am interested in cross-cultural differences on this. I don't mm. know much about it, but I, I am almost positive. Like in China, those numbers would be very different. Mm. Americans are very sunny, very proud of ourselves, all that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or or the Nordic countries as well. Oh, God, yeah. I've noticed They're, it tend to have much more self-effacing culture. Or from an American's <laughs> perspective, it looks self-effacing. And from, yeah. from their perspective, we look probably I mean, self-aggrandizing. It's dark eight months a year. They're just chugging vodka all day. It's not a happy yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a <laughs> not <laughs> a behavior that makes you feel good about yourself. Exactly. No. All right. So have you, in the course of writing this book, did you think of any best habits of bias reduction? Like what, given that even you writing this book have as much propensity as anyone you're writing about to be biased yeah. based on in all the ways that we can be biased when thinking about what's true in the world. What are the best habits that you recommend uh, for an academic and then also for a layperson to reduce the amount of bias? If you sell stuff online, you're definitely in the right business. More people are shopping online than ever before. That means a lot of orders coming in and a lot of orders you'll need to ship out fast. That's why online sellers like you need ShipStation. No matter how much you sell, ShipStation makes it super easy to manage and ship all of your orders from all of your sales channels faster, cheaper, and more efficiently. So you can spend a lot less time on shipping and a lot more time growing your business. No matter where you're selling, Amazon, Etsy, or your own website, ShipStation funnels all of your orders into one simple interface that you can manage from anywhere, even your cell phone. You'll also get access to amazing discounts with major carriers, including UPS, FedEx, and USPS, that are normally reserved for Fortune 500 companies. Ship more in less time. Just use my offer code, Coleman, 
to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months free of no-hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in Coleman. That's ShipStation.com. Enter offer code Coleman. That's a really good question. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to guardrails. And, and in the book, I talk about these reforms that have been introduced to improve methodology of psychology. Like if I do an experiment where I give you a pill and I check your health readings before and after the pill, but I check 25 different aspects of your health, blood pressure, depression, anxiety, statistically, there will be some difference in something pre and post. Because if you test enough things statistically, there'll be some difference. If you put guardrails on that and you force me to make a hypothesis, like I think this pill will improve Coleman's blood pressure or whatever, that makes it much harder for me to convince myself or others that I found something when nothing's there. And I think like the rationalist community is pretty good about this. Like they will force one another to make very precise predictions about what they really think that you can't really fudge later on. It'll even be like, put a percentage on it. How how sure are you that this thing is true? So I think getting in habits like that can really help to fight bias because the more the more freedom we have to sort of tell bullshit stories and like pretend we said Y when we really said X, those are the environments in which uh, bias really festers. Mm, yeah. So I want to talk about the implicit association test. Yep. Um, that's a big topic in your book. And I think it's in the introduction, you say it's the topic that sort of launched the rest of the book as the maybe most salient and most controversial example of an effect that was and continues to be hugely overhyped. Yeah. So can you talk about the origins of the implicit association test? What is the test? Who came up with it? And what were its initial promises? Yeah. So in 1998, the University of Washington holds this press conference and Mazarin Banaji, she's now at Harvard, and Anthony Greenwald, still at the University of Washington, they announced they've come up with this test that can reveal people's unconscious bias. And it's basically based on a priming theory. So if you go to the Harvard's Project Implicit website, you'll be told, you sit down, you take the test, hit I if you see a good word or a, black, a white face, hit E if you see a black face or a bad word, or you switch that. And there's an algorithm that basically calculates how easy it is for you to connect white faces with positive words versus black faces with negative words or vice versa. So if it's easy for me to connect a photo of a black guy with a word like uh, illness or distress or whatever the negative words are, the theory is I'm implicitly biased against black people. And early on, the creators of the test said that it did a remarkably good job at predicting behavior. So if you get a high score on the black-white IAT, which means you're biased against black people, that means you're going to act biased against them in the real world, or you're more likely to. There are other versions of the test. You can take tests that measure your bias against fat people or women or other groups, but the black-white IAT has been the real blockbuster. So for years, people took this test and they were, there's this whole subgenre of anecdote where you take the test and then you post to Facebook or Twitter. Wow, I've got a lot of learning to do about my implicit biases. It turns out I'm biased against black people. I'm, I'm ashamed of this. It became this real sociological phenomenon. The problem is we still don't know exactly what it's actually measuring because a a, a difference in reaction time between different stimuli is suggestive of something, but that's not bias in itself. That doesn't prove that that actually corresponds to real world behavior. 
There's some evidence that the implicit bias actually measures familiarity with certain narratives. So an important early paper critiquing it was called Would Jesse Jackson Fail the Implicit Association Test? And the logic is Jesse Jackson is well aware of anti-Black racism. That could give him a high score on the IAT. And while there, so there's some patterns, like, like white people do score higher than Black people. Overall, it's like an incredibly noisy test. You get very different results if you take it and then take it again. And as of 2015, even the test creators have said this is too noisy for us to use to diagnose individuals as being likely to engage in racist acts. So in my view, the, the central provocative premise of the test has completely fallen apart. Why isn't the fact that white people on average score higher by itself proof that the test is measuring racism? I think it tells us something interesting, but there's just a lot of potential confounds there. Like if a lot of, based on my understanding, if a lot of ardently anti-racist whites take the test, I think there's some evidence that could actually lead to a higher score because you're so aware of these, the downtroddenness of black people Mm. in this worldview. That could lead to a higher score. So there's so many potential confounds that I don't think that proves anything on its own. I do think it's suggestive that this is like interesting and whatever they're measuring is more interesting than if it was totally random and there were no patterns. But when you look at some of the research that has been done, trying to probe the question of what's being measured there, it seems to be a lot more complicated than just implicit bias. And and I think I, I might be missing the forest for the trees here. Most importantly, if you correlate implicit association test scores with quote unquote, racist behavior in lab settings, tiny correlation, like it's statistically significant, but it's just not a useful predictor of anything. Mm. So that means if I score, there's also the reliability problem, the test retest reliability problem. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. That just means if you take the test and then take it again later, you'll get a significantly different score. And by any normal standards of what psychologists call psychometric instruments, this test is way too weak to be used in professional settings. Like if, if, right. if you have the same numbers for an anxiety or depression test, researchers would just throw it out because you can't use a test that noisy. Right. It's, it's, it's as if an IQ test or an SAT that I took today and tomorrow, I, got, I just got wildly different scores. Like I'm yeah. like, that, that's pretty normal when it comes to IAT. That, that is the norm. It's the norm. You know, I don't want to exaggerate. It would be like uh, SAT giving you a 1500 versus a 1300. So maybe both above average scores, but very different within that band. Yeah. Right. So I want to drill down more on this, the notion of uh, implicit bias. Yeah. One question is, we're talking about bias that's unconscious, right? Bias that you actually don't know you're experiencing. Yeah. Is it possible to use your conscious mind to alter your unconscious mind? Do we know how to do that? Or is that, is that, is that in some sense a contradiction, right? Because if it's unconscious to begin with, is it possible to access that and alter it with, with our conscious minds in, for instance, a, a workplace setting with, with a PowerPoint or, or an exercise? So Part of the problem here is like the the people who created the IAT, I, I do not think they've been that deft philosophically explaining exactly what they mean about unconscious bias. They are sometimes fuzzy about that. The studies we have suggest that there are, assuming what is being measured is unconscious bias, there are some interventions that can reduce your score on the IAT. 
There's no evidence that that score reduction leads to any change in behavior beyond the context of the IAT. So the strict answer to your question, can conscious activity change your unconscious mind, is yes, in the IAT context. I also think that like the brain is such a pattern matching machine and we form associations in such a specific way that it seems pretty obvious that if you consciously attempted to form some association by like pairing two images Mm -hmm. or uh, some kind of Pavlovian training, like you hear a bell and then uh, someone brings ice cream, stuff like that. There's definitely ways you could hack your mind to, to use in conscious ways to generate unconscious effects. I think that's pretty clear. Yeah. um, It, it it strikes me right now for the first time because I've been playing lots of bullet chess, which is one minute chess or a 30 second chess where you have 30 seconds or a minute to make all of your moves. So you have to move instantly. And it's analogous to the implicit association test, which I have taken because it's all about extremely fast pattern recognition, right? It's, and it's a skill that people, you know, there is a best bullet chess player in the world and then there's a worse bullet and then there's me. (laughs) (laughs) But if you practice every day for 30 minutes or an hour, you will find yourself just slowly recognizing, instantly recognizing these patterns, right? And you don't have a positive or negative association with these patterns on the chessboard in, in this case. But in the case of say, an association between a blackface and the word bad. What you were alluding to when you talked about the Jesse Jackson example is that it's totally possible that what it means to pair those two items quickly is just to know the pattern that, know that the pattern exists, right? Yeah, without endorsing it in any sense. Yeah. Right. Say, say, and, and, it, much in the in the same way that you can just quickly recognize a particular two move checkmate in in half a second because you've seen it so many times. Yeah. Right. So it could just be that you're very aware that black faces are associated with badness, without that association being an active part of your conscious mind and the way you you move through the world. Right. You could be just very you could have been raised to know, like in, in my case, I was raised by my family and, and to, to know that there is racism out there, that this is what some people think of black people, right? Yeah. Those patterns would have been instilled in me. And so to recognize them quickly rather than slowly, which is the key variable that is being called bias in the implicit association test. It is dubious theoretically and empirically as well. Yeah, I agree completely. And that's why when I write about the test, I try, it's easy to get in the habit as saying a person with a higher score is more implicitly biased than the other. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of begging the question because I, I don't think we know exactly what these patterns measure. Right. So have Banaji and Greenwald walked any of the initial claims back? So in 2015, they did in a relatively obscure... I mean, not obscure to academics, but obscure to lay people article. They, yeah, they acknowledge the test is too noisy. I think they flip-flopped on this. And just a few weeks ago, long after I could have put it in my book, the Today Show did sort of a glowing five or six minute segment about the IIT that Banaji appeared on that didn't, this might not be her fault, but there wasn't a trace of skepticism there. And Greenwald actually, when my podcast co-host Katie Herzog was writing about the IIT for The Stranger, he told her basically, 
he thought that it still predicts stuff. So I, I don't think they've been as clear and forthright as they should have been in terms of saying, like, we got out ahead of ourselves on this. Hmm. So I think a lot of people are experiencing implicit bias trainings in the workplace right now. This is something that has become, I think, corporate band-aid to any problem seemingly related to racism. Yeah. Um, it's, it's become a thing that is socially acceptable as a top-down response to the problem of racism at our company. So what can you say about implicit bias trainings? They don't, they don't seem to do anything. And I, the, my, the critique in my book is bigger than being just about the IAT. I sort of take on a lot of, um, you know, what John McWhorter would call the religion of anti-racism. And I think a lot of this stuff has been, a lot of this virtuous energy has been sort of rerouted to examine the minds of like guilty white liberals. And, and I think as a species, we're very fascinated by ourselves. And we're at the point where we think that all we need to do is like, is tweak the minds of, of the focus really is white uh, liberals and that that will somehow generate better outcomes. But if, if you look at sort of how hiring takes place or, or how these discriminatory outcomes work and, and what generates them, it is much, much more complicated than anything that could be chalked up to implicit bias. I mean, that can be true. It could also be true that there's some marginal effect where implicit bias, like, you know, uh, realtors maybe are a little bit implicitly biased and don't rent the same units to the same people. Sure, that could be a little bit of it. But I just think, as you as you know well, these outcomes are much more complicated than that. And, and I think the focus on implicit bias really is largely about how cool it is to be able to take a test and then tell your friends that you're, uh, mm. you're working on fixing your implicit bias. Right. And there, there's something about it that, you know, the notion that a white liberal could post their IAT score test, you know, in one sense, they're outing themselves as a racist, but they're not really outing themselves as a racist. In other words, they're pricing in people's common sense notion, I think, that a few milliseconds of difference between how quickly you could pair a face in a word is not really the kind of racism, can't possibly be the kind of racism that we remove people from polite society for. Right. Right. So it's like an admission without being a full admission. You can admit to just enough racism to sort of get social brownie points for self-awareness and a kind of faux vulnerability without actually admitting to something that is truly damning or, you know, that would truly get you judged. Yeah. Right. It's like, you're not admitting to ever having harmed a black person ever. Like, you know, for instance, I remember when Liam Neeson, I think the, I could be getting some of the details wrong, but he, he basically admitted to, I think there someone in his family got mugged by a black person or something, something happened. Yeah. And he found that for a little while after that, he would see a black guy on the street and have this Reaction. flash of anger. Yeah. yeah. I once had a similar experience with, with blonde men. Strangely. The, they're the worst. They're thing. the worst. They're not. <laughs> uh, like I had a very, I've had a very bad experience with one. And then for, for the next month, anytime I saw anyone that looked like him, I had this, totally irrational flash of anger. Yeah. And so when I heard the Liam Neeson story, I recognized that that's a strange phenomenon that I think probably a, a lot of people have experienced. And in his case, in Liam Neeson's case, that's actually something 
interesting and truly vulnerable to admit to, right? Yeah. It's, that's something worth talking about that I don't think one should be cast out of society for having mentioned so long as you don't actually come to the conclusion that black people are less than, which he, he wasn't. No. But that's something that someone who shares the IAT probably wouldn't be willing to put on their Instagram, right? No, but what's weird is these days, I think what you're saying was true five or six years ago, but don't you mm. think the trajectory has been toward like, people really will say basically like, I'm white supremacist. But when they say that, they don't, they don't, you're, there's some, you're right that there's some sense in which they don't mean I'm like literally about to put on a hood, but there's been this conflation of explicit bias and implicit bias and just I'm white supremacist in the sense that I'm swimming around in a white supremacist culture and must have internalized it. Like that's the whole mm-hmm. Robin D'Angelo thing. It's like, we yeah. all have this thing. So if we all have this thing, the price of admitting to have this thing is, well, it's a negative price because you get credit for admitting you have it and everyone has it anyway. So why mm-hmm. not admit it? But yeah, you're right. It's totally but, different. But also, from why admit it? Why if, admit if, it? Yeah, if if you're like in in Robin DiAngelo's case, you know her her proposition is that all white people are racist inevitably by having been born in a racist culture. Racism yeah. is something you drink in with the water in America. It's like being white supremacist is essentially like speaking English. You just you just got it growing up without without any moral culpability, certainly, but without any agency whatsoever. So if you're committed to that proposition, why personally admit? You're saying everyone is by definition. Yeah. You're not really admitting to something vulnerable there. You are, you're signaling that you're on that side of the argument of what anti-racism should be, right? Well, I think she would say you're also taking the first step in a, even though her whole business model relies on it not really being possible to dispel one's personal white supremacy, it's still, there's like this religious journey of attempting to do so. And unless you, you know, the first step is like the Alcoholics Anonymous thing. The first step is to admit, hi, I'm Jesse and I'm a white supremacist. Don't take that quote out of context, Coleman. Um, <laughs> so I think that's what she would say. I don't think she has a coherent model and I, and I don't think she'd even... Yeah, obviously, I, I've read her book closely and found it so bizarre. I mean, people have said enough about it, but I, there is this weird confessional thing going on right now. There's also a book um, called Race Experts by Elizabeth Lash Quinn from like 2002. I think it got overshadowed, like basically by 9-11, that just talked about how this dynamic had been going on for decades, this shift from like big universalist civil rights arguments to it's like almost a hobby for white people to like play around with their racism and try to dispel it in colorful mm-hmm. ways. So. Mm-hmm. It's been a weird strain of anti-racist thought for a while. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as I've said before, I do it, the analogy to Christianity is striking and has been made and seen by many people that this notion that I'm a sinner, basically, and I have this original sin that I walk around with all the time involuntarily yeah. that I inherited with no, w- without deciding to, that I can also never fully get rid of, but should constantly try to get rid of and should go to weekly gatherings to be reminded that I haven't gotten rid of it, but that I have to keep trying. And it's not your fault, but also it is your fault. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. So the last thing I want to talk about in, in your book is the concept of nudges, which I find to be fascinating. What is a nudge? Where does this idea 
come from? Yeah, so so the idea um, basically comes from uh, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler. Uh, it comes from the field of behavioral economics, and it it really goes back to these two Israeli researchers who are legends in the field, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky. They basically showed that in a lot of ways we make decisions uh, in an irrational manner. And for a long time, social scientists thought we were like basically robotic in our decision-making. And we knew how to like, we had uh, clearly ordered preferences. We knew how to maximize our profit or utility. If we didn't do a good job of that, it was just because of like random errors we would make because we're not good calculators. These guys blew that all out of the water. And what they showed is that we make pretty predictable errors. One of them is called the anchoring effect, where if I expose you to a number, that number seems to like will pull you toward it in a subsequent exercise that shouldn't have anything to do with it. Like, so if I if I randomly uh, say expose you to the number 500 and then I ask you to estimate the value of a car versus if I told you the number 5000 beforehand, that weirdly affects your estimate of the value of the car, even though they have nothing to do with one another. So they found all these interesting effects. And then half a century later, this concept of nudging comes to the fore where we use this knowledge of how people's attempts at rationality get tripped up and we, we tweak their environment. We become sort of environmental architects to try to help them make better decisions without imposing those decisions on them. So a classic example of this is like people say they want to eat healthier but they will just grab a dessert right there. There's some evidence that if you just make them walk 20 extra feet to the back of the cafeteria to get a dessert, that will have a meaningful effect on their behavior, which in the in this sort of homo economicus model, as they called it, that shouldn't affect their behavior because it's, mm. it's 20 feet, it's nothing, and they want it. But there's like a concepts like what we want turn out to be pretty fuzzy and pretty easily modified by our environment. So nudges are basically ways of getting people to eat healthier, or spend less money, or be better to the environment through low-cost interventions. And one of the interesting things I found is, like, I am against prime world in general. I'm against the idea that we're going to really fix racism with these subtle tweaks. But if our ambitions are modest, and we just want people to eat a little bit better, or use a little bit less electricity, there's a place for nudges. Yeah. No, that's, yeah, it's, it's, I was about to ask that question, because the insights that generated nudges would fit very well in prime world in, in a sense, but they're unlike the funny examples you listed at the beginning because they rest on a very sort of simple, powerful theory of human psychology, which is that convenience matters to people. Yeah. And, and time matters to people, right? It's not, it's, it's not like a statue making you an atheist. It's, it's like if I'm ordering from Grubhub and... I have to check a box in order for them to give me plastic utensils. Right. Depending on how you flip the, the box check, you're going to find some people, some people are just going to scroll right past that, right? So yeah. depending on whether you make something opt-in or opt-out, that's going to influence people's decisions, quote-unquote, and how many plastic forks get consumed, right? That kind of thing is pretty plausible. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you can generate very impressive lab effects on it. Sometimes when you try to translate it to the real world, it doesn't work as well as you'd like. So the point I make in the book is you can't just say nudges work or nudges don't work. You need to actually test the nudge in question. But there's ways to do that. And and that's why, you know, I'm, I'm not anti-nudge. I, I do sort of critique Cass Sunstein for, I think, getting a little too 
into nudges and like maybe, you know, with a subprime mortgage crisis, focusing a bit too much on the fact that like mortgages are written in a complicated way rather than the question of whether the government should underwrite incredibly mm. exploitative mortgages in the first place. But that's one of the themes of my book is like we tend to focus in on the stuff we have control over. Like it's hard to write legislation. It's not hard to like make subtle tweaks to certain regulatory rules. So I think sometimes we get pulled too far in that direction. Yeah, I think the other example you gave was nudges in the criminal justice system that reduce the amount of needless arrests but without focusing on getting rid of bad laws to begin with. Yeah. And I, I myself uh, was caught drinking in a Williamsburg park with a friend a couple summers ago, and I got a, a civil summons that would have been a criminal summons not too long before. Mm. Um, they found back when they're doing criminal summons for things like public drinking and urination, they found people would not show up at court to enter their plea. And if you don't show up to court, you automatically get a bench warrant. And what they realized is a lot of this was simply the form did not effectively communicate, you have to go to court. Mm. And they really, the failure to appear rate went down after they redesigned the form. But the problem solved itself much more when they just changed the law and said, we're not going to issue bench warrants for public urination, which is, when you think about it, a pretty ridiculous thing to do. So yeah, it's a difference between like hard fixes and easier or quick fixes, as it Mm. were. The name of the book. There we go. Circled right back. All right. So I'll show the book one more time. The book is The Quick Fix. We did not get to all of it in this podcast, and it should be coming out right around the time that this podcast gets released. So um, is there anywhere else that you can point my audience to, to see your work right now? Are you, are you writing for, for Substack or... Yeah, jessysingle.substack.com. I have a newsletter nice. there. Uh, my We have a podcast called Blocked and Reported that covers a lot of the, to my mind, interesting culture war stuff that I think we would have talked about if I didn't also have a book to promote. <laughs> I think your audience would like Blocked and Reported if they haven't heard of it. Yeah, and, and if the book sounds interesting to you, please consider ordering it for a first-time author. Early sales matter a lot, so uh, I would appreciate that. Yeah, either way, I can fully recommend to my audience, you're writing, you're one of the most careful writers and thinkers that is out there today talking about culture war stuff in particular and the science literature stuff that you cover. You're one of my favorites to read. Thank you. I I cannot, I cannot recommend you enough. That's very kind of you to say, and I really appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Until next time. Awesome. Thanks, man. That was great.